0: If we're talking startups and products, you can build a whole business on, on a feature that another company already has that is like so darn buried, right? Like, like Calendly, Google Calendar actually has that feature.
1: Hello, hello, and welcome to a brand new Social Confos episode. It's uh, time for a brand new episode, Diego, and uh, we have our first comment already. Gregory was getting worried. Where are you guys? Well, we're right here right on time at nine o'clock and yes Gregory I gave Diego a scare today for making him think that I wouldn't show up for today's episode but I'm really excited about today's guest so I wouldn't miss it for the world.
2: Today's gonna be an exciting one Uh, we have a our guest is currently based in Chicago and as you've seen in the announcement we have Peg Pong Pet the Founder and uh, CEO of Impeccable, a UX U.S. design firm uh, based in the U.S. And they serve clients globally. And I got to say, when I checked it out, I was blown away by the portfolio, the work they've done. If, if you ask me now, if I knew beforehand what everything was that Tech has done, I would have been intimidated to ask him. But I, I'm glad it happened the other way around. Uh, we'll go into that a bit. But yeah, he also has two podcasts. So just like us, he hosts his own podcast, the What is UX podcast and a Founders with Peck podcast. So if you guys get a chance uh, after this episode, also check those out. And fun fact, I think I'm going to ask him to tell us more about this himself. But I'm, I'm going to bring Peck up right now. Hey, Peck! welcome to Social Convos. Hey, thank you. Nice to meet you, Greg. Thanks for hopping on the show. Yeah. Yeah. And quickly, the first time I met Peck was in in a Zoom call and we were all introducing ourselves. And this is the funnest fact I've heard anyone just, you know, casually say, yeah, I, I used to, you know, you know, Mortal Kombat, Sub-Zero, the Motion Capture. Yeah, I have used to do, do that. So, Peck, can you tell us a bit more about that on your history with Mortal Kombat and Motion Capture and in the DC universe as well?
0: Yeah. So there's a video game that was big in the early 90s called Mortal Kombat. And it started out as an arcade game. And over the years, it's, I don't know how many years it's been, but it's been, what, at least two decades since uh, Mortal Kombat's been around. And there's recently a, a movie, Mortal Kombat movie, but I've been involved in doing the, was involved in doing the martial arts moves for Mortal Kombat, starting with Mortal Kombat 5 till about Mortal Kombat 10 for 10 years. They, they did about a game every two years. You know, um sort of older now and I don't do that anymore. But yeah, I did that for 10 years. Mortal Kombat, it was like, the first game was, I think, 2000, 2001, I want to say. Yeah, 2001 to 2011, right? So Mortal Kombat, Deadly the Alliance, Mortal Kombat, Shaolin Monks, Armageddon. I forget, yeah, there's, a, there's MK versus DC Universe. Oh, Shaolin Monks, maybe a Deception. I forgot Deception. and then, And then the reboot called Mortal Kombat.
2: That's quite a lot. Yeah. I think Mortal Kombat, if you ask anyone around our, our generation, they, they grew up with Mortal Kombat. I myself have played it. I have a few friends who, you know, so it's kind of really cool to have someone here behind who was behind the scenes and and maybe shed some lights how that that was. Well, the cooler,
0: the cooler fact, like, you know, the the, the games that I'm in are were not as famous as the original games, right? Mortal Kombat 1, 2 and 3. Right. Mortal Kombat 2 is probably in the arcades is one of the best, you know, games and three. The, the more cool fact is some of my instructors were in those games. So like Johnny Cage was my instructor. You know, the, the, the guy who played is a, a, a real martial artist called, named Danny Pesina. And then the guy who played Kong Lao was also a real martial artist who they both uh, come from the same lineage of martial arts and same martial arts instructor. but he also has his own school and his name is, is Tony Marquez and both of them I, I study I actually studied with both of them so I know knew the, those people who played those characters. And Tony Marquez actually also played a ninja a, a teenage mutant ninja turtle in, in one of the movies or maybe two of the movies, two and three.
1: Okay, so, so our audience our audience is fishing already. So there are a couple of questions. Of course, a shout out from Gregory once again. But he wants to know, what's your martial arts background? And also, is there any significance of the Mario poster behind you?
0: The the style that I did was it's called wushu, which is a Chinese martial arts. I grew up watching a lot of kung fu movies and kung fu, like soap opera, Chinese soap opera in, in Thailand where I grew up. And of course, I saw Jet Li, Jackie Chan, and I was very, you know, I always wanted to study martial arts, but being of very strict Asian parents, you know, they were just like, just study, just don't do anything else, just study, <laughs> just get good grades and, and follow that very narrow path. So I, so it's always something in the back of my mind, but not something my parents uh, encouraged or, or were going to support. How I started was when I graduated college with an engineering degree, got my job my first paycheck, I started looking for a, a Kung Fu school <laughs> near my house. And as luck would have it, Daniel pacina who played Johnny Cage in the original Mortal Kombat video games, was teaching out of a school that happened to be close to where I live. And yeah, I just happened to pick a school that was close because so that I could go because of traffic and convenience. If I didn't, you know, if it was far away, then I probably wouldn't go. So I got very lucky to, to study there. Uh, the significance of Mario, it's not a poster. It's actually a, an art piece made out of wooden blocks. And it's supposed to be a, a sound diffuser. So when you have, uh, say, a podcast or something, they have those really ugly foam diffusers that I bought. And I was like, oh, this is so ugly. I would never put this up. Uh, and then I've heard about these wooden blocks that are, you know, I found them on Etsy that were sound diffusers. And some of them are just bland, boring blocks. And some of them have like some paint on them. And, you know, I, 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 just, like, I looked at it and I'm like, yeah, this is kind of cool, but not what I want. And then I was like, oh, this is like, they're like pixels. They could be like pixel art. So I actually commissioned someone on Etsy to make this special for me.
2: That's really cool. We should get some.
1: That's cool.
2: <laughs> I have no sound diffusers. I have this new, uh, white
1: walls.
0: Yeah. If you just have like straight, like flat walls, right. Without anything kind of breaking the sound of like, I've listened to my own podcast and it, I can tell that it sounds like
2: tinny or echoey.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah, I, I've I've noticed that a few times as well. So it was kind of like more of a, you know, right place, right time for you. That's how you got kind of roped into the scene from what I'm understanding.
0: Yeah, well, I got lucky to be met up with good coaches. I mean, like the Mortal Kombat thing, I mean, it, it is cool to be part of video game history. But my passion for martial arts was, you know, because of like the Jet Lees, you know, Jackie Chans of the world. And, you know, I, I really enjoyed The Mortal Kombat piece, although, you know, it was very small, you know, I studied it for over 10 years, the the motion capture work didn't take a lot of time. So every year it would only take up a few days, you know, whenever we did it, you know, they try to cram it in and I I go there and it was, you know, they have a a huge move list. They have like the loose plot for the cinematic trailer intro, like who fights who and who's supposed to win. And then we martial artists figure out the details of the fight, but it's really only a few days a year versus, you know, the training competition and stuff is that, that was a good chunk of my life after work.
1: Quick transition to business. How hard was it for you to come up with a name for your company?
0: <laughs>
1: was it easy or was it actually more difficult than, than we would have to imagine?
0: You know, uh, I had a really lame name for the original company name, and which I won't even share because I'm so embarrassed. But the impeccable one is someone an early client came came up with for me. She, she had an idea and she brought it up and I was like, wow, that's a lot of pressure. Impeccable, you know, that, that means flawless, <laughs> right? Like that's like, that's aiming super high and that's, that's a lot of pressure to put. And then plus it's got my name in it and that's, that's kind of vain. So I didn't really like it at first, but then I would ask, I would test it out. I asked all the other clients, I said, hey, I'm thinking about changing the name of the company. So you know the name of the company. How how about this new one, Impeccable? I was like, oh, Impeccable, so much better, so much better. Like, oh, and after hearing that many times, I'm like, okay, fine. <laughs> I just gave in and leaned in. But it is it is a good name. And I, I, even people who know me know that I like puns. So this is a great pun
2: no yeah it, it it's amazing, <laughs> and it's it's like it it rolls so easily and it's quite memorable and the, the coincidence that it really fits with you with your name that's even better, <laughs> and I love funds as well. but yeah, you you mentioned you know grew up in Thailand, had the traditional upbringing we have heard this time and time again, you know, traditional upbringing do the engineering econ- ec- economics and the basic doctor doctor, lawyer, <laughs> doctor, lawyer. Yeah. We, if heard this time and time again, but you ended up in one of the, yeah, the, the, the most creative spaces in tech, especially. So how did you make that finally make the transition from the traditional trajectory to having a serious hobby in motion capture and then starting your design UX UI, UI business?
0: I discovered my passion. I, I at some point, uh, maybe like junior high or high school, my, my, I got to like learn about computers and uh, we, we didn't, my first computer, of course, I think was in interaction was at school. But then, you know, I would, after school, I would go to my dad's office and, you know, I, I got, I borrowed, you know, I had copies of, of games from friends. So like Prince of Persia, like the old Prince of Persia and, and all these other old games, I would play them and had a lot of fun. And, you know, I I discovered that I like computers or at least playing computer games. (laughs) That's not saying that I didn't really think too much about it. It's like, oh, I like playing computer games, therefore I must like computers. But I, I, do, I would also tinker with uh, the computers and you know, learn basic commands and learn DOS. That was in the age of DOS. I learned programs and how to execute programs, copy programs, and learn basic DOS stuff. I enjoyed it. I, I, I tinkered with enough of it that I went and uh, we, we also had an introductory computer uh, programming course in, in, in high school which I enjoyed. So after that, I decided that I really wanted to study, you know, computers. I didn't realize I went into computer engineering, which is sort of like computer hardware plus computer software. I actually didn't like the hardware part part at all. I don't like circuits and, you know, capacitors and and circuit diagrams and and dynamics and all that stuff didn't interest me at all. Like, I think if I could do it back over again, I'd probably just be a pure computer, computer science major and just study software. This hardware had no interest for me.
1: But actually, my
0: yeah, yeah. But my, my parents really did want me, or at least my father did not did want me to be a doctor. And uh, at the time in Thailand, I don't know if it's kind of still true now, but in Thailand, if you want to go into medicine, they have this thing where you have to be an intern, you know like be sort of an apprentice or intern and, and try it out before dedicating your life, you know, into this field. When you apply, they, they assign you to a random hospital. Uh, So when I was going into medicine, I had to go and I was assigned this sort of like on the edge of the, of Bangkok, like not, not like a downtown in the city hospital. So it was kind of like more uh, slightly rural, And I I worked in the emergency room and I can tell you, I lasted two days. (laughs) Like one of the first day, uh, a guy came with an infection the size of a tennis ball and they had to like cut it open and it smelled up the whole room and it just shot up in pus, you know, and then another day, or maybe it was the same day, but a guy, he had a bullet wound, but it, he didn't, he, he didn't come right away. He, he had gotten shot in the leg and it was infected. It had been either several days or whatnot, but it also, he didn't report it right away. So he came in because it was infected and we had to deal with that as well. So after days of experiences like that, I, I went back to dad and I said, look, medicine is just not for me. I, I Like there was just like too much blood and, you know, blood and smell and, and stuff like that I was like I, I can't do this my my cousin had a very different experience so, so when he did the same thing he was assigned to like pediatrics so he he got to like coddle babies for his internship so of, of course he went into medicine and now he's a great doctor but my experience was so traumatic like yeah it totally scared me off so as I told dad like look medicine I just can't do it and like I'm just gonna study computer engineering So so that's what happened. (laughs) There was no sending me back to that.
2: (laughs) The assignment uh, to the the hospitals was, like, random for everyone who, like, applied?
0: Yeah, yeah, you don't get to choose. That's ridiculous.
2: Wow. So it's basically a lottery ticket, like, okay... You either have a great experience or a horrible experience.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, and and I didn't pass the test. So so how I got into that yeah, that's that's basically how I got into the field of engineering. And then again, you know, I always grew up watching kung fu movies, so I, I always wanted to, you know, do do martial arts at some point, but I, I didn't get the support of my parents. So when I finally could get it, you know, with my own money, I I did. Yeah. So that's kind of the story of how I get into Tech Through school and then how I got into kung fu or wushu, yeah
2: but you basically grew up like your whole childhood in, in Thailand basically, and did uh, your school there no,
0: no, not entirely, but we can get into that
2: so well, yeah when, when was the move to the u s actually and like and you decided you know to to stay in the u s not go back and develop yourself and your business and basically your career
0: so so my parents are were Thai diplomats so they we grew up traveling around the world so both my both my mom was a diplomat my father was a diplomat when in fact when they had me they were still also both working and I I grew up the first few years just uh, with my mom in Malaysia so we we ended up in Malaysia just my mom and I and then my my dad at the time was in as a Thai diplomat in Beijing and actually that's how I got my name Peck so like the old name Beijing is Peking. So P-E-K is the international airport code. So yeah, that's, that's what PEC comes from. But yeah, at some point, so, so, you know, both, both my parents traveled for, for work and we kind of, as kids, you know, grew up traveling like, like diplomat kids or military kids. But my dad always put us in both my sister and I in like American schools or international schools. So it was, I, I didn't really grow up like with a, very Thai mindset, so it was always like, you know, at some point I was gonna go to the U.S. for for college, and yeah, <laughs> like I'm not very Thai, I guess, in that sense. So, yeah, and then um, as luck would have it, my my father around the time I became like just about graduating high school, my my father got assigned to to the U.S. to Chicago as uh, as consul general, so he he got to moved to Chicago and, and brought us with along with and that was right at the time when I started college. So I started college so I applied to a few universities and I, I got into the University of Illinois which is in Chicago and my sister is still in high school and that's how we, we ended up in the in Chicago and then you know fast forward a few years I am after about a decade or so in working in tech in Chicago I decided to move to the Bay Area San Francisco Bay Area, Silicon Valley, because that's where my heart is, is like tech startups. And, you know, I, I love reading about that. And, you know, the tech scene in Chicago in the early 2000s was pretty lame. So <laughs> we, you know, other other than a few, you know, companies, so I decided to move there. And then that's how Impeccable started.
2: Um, cool. We got some quick comments here, like, uh, blood from anil blood in games is different so that that doesn't bother you at all (laughs) especially in mortal kombat because the gore in mortal kombat
0: you know the funny thing is i i liked fighting games and but i didn't really like the game mortal kombat as much yeah yeah, i felt like it was like needlessly violent but i did play games like you know i liked one of my favorite games was virtual fighter 2 2 was one of the best tekken virtual fighter and tekken and soul caliber were my go-to fighting games
2: yeah, uh, I, I, I've had, my, yeah, I've had my share of Tekken. <laughs> and I, I just quickly thought of this. So quick, quick fun fact here, since Anil mentioned this comment. In a way, because you used to work for Accenture as well, right? Yeah. Uh, in, in your early days, so we had Anil here a few months ago, and that's where he started as well. It, they weren't called Accenture, but he started in the Netherlands. So in a way, you guys were maybe colleagues.
0: Yeah, I was. Uh at Accenture in Chicago for almost five years. Yeah, it's my second or third job.
2: But th- th- that doesn't really explain yet Or so tech, more engineering, computer science background, because UI UX is really more visual. So that transition from the, the code tech software to the more front end visual side, when did that happen? When, The products that you guys made were like, like visually, like, wow.
0: Right after college, I graduated as software engineer. So the first years were pure software engineering. So writing code, I think around for about seven years, I was mostly a software engineer, software developer with like, especially a Microsoft one. So I had all these Microsoft technology certifications. So like MC. Microsoft solution developer, Microsoft DBA, all that stuff. I was very into the Microsoft enterprise world, but around, yeah, around towards the end of that, I think, you know, when Steve Jobs came back to Apple and then you saw this like surge of well, well designed consumer software and then like the Facebooks and the Googles and the PayPal's and eBay's kind of started coming up and uh, software like was good, right? Like had a great user interface. It was well-designed. It was usable. I decided, you know, I, at some point everybody writes good code and it's like diminishing returns. Like, like that's table stakes, right? Where you can have a a differentiator. I, I, at least in the consumer space, right? Or prosumer, good software is not just good code. It's, it's also well-designed. And I really appreciated that, and I was like, "Oh, that's where I want to be. You know, I want to make I really enjoyed using good software. I want to be part of that side, that part of that camp. So I started studying self-teaching software design and eventually became pretty decent at it. But that's how it started. was seeing all that proliferation of internet consumer software, you know apples kind of coming into the field with Steve Jobs and Johnny Ive, you, know, and, and later on the iPhone. Yeah, that's, that's really what got me into software design, UX design.
2: Ah, thanks, thanks for that. Yeah, I, I said uh, that's really cool. And that quickly brings me to the next question, because you are inspired by, you know, Steve Jobs, the UI, that tech internet space. So how much do you think does the the environment like Silicon Valley, San Francisco, the Bay Area, that shape someone or help shape you if, if you look back from growing up in Thailand, moving to Chicago, and then to being exposed in that environment, do you think it would have ended up a different way if you weren't, like, in that environment at that time?
0: Yeah, I think my, my you know, my choice in career would have been very different. I think, so, yeah, I think me, for me, had I not gone to Chicago, and, and Chicago's proximity, so while I was in college, so at U of I, you know, the, the other campus, U of I, you know, this was, like, the days of Netscape or Mosaic, the 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 first browser, Mosaic, and then right after that, Netscape,
1: like ninety five around midnight. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: This was all happening while I was in college taking computer classes. Like all of a sudden, hey, we have this thing called a, a web browser, Mosaic. You know, from from the other campus, U of I, the other campus. Check it out. We download it, use it. Like this is cool. And then a couple months later, like Mosaic is no longer cool, and there's this thing, Netscape and we're using that, and then we're using that to browse Yahoo, and we're using that to browse all of a sudden, you know, there's like Hotmail, there's like, you know, Google and, and stuff like that, all all while we're in, in college, and all that was happening. I don't, you know, I, if you were not as close to it while it was happening, you might not have been exposed to it for many other years, right? So I think that's that that proximity helped me kind of be be exposed to it at an early time when all those things were happening, you know, recounting, you know, somebody else's interview that I interviewed, you know, she she was YouTube's first designer, she went to U of I, the other campus where she had met Steve Chan and Chad Hurley, the founders of YouTube, you know, they they were working on it as a side project as an evening project, you know, as, as a cool thing. So being being close to to all those things helped me get exposed to it early on, which I don't think would have happened had I stayed in Thailand, you know. And and also, like, you know, even now, right, like, if you look at the startups in Thailand, or, you know, any other place, it's very different, right? Like, they're, they're for example, I think in Thailand, startups tend to be more, there's, like, tourism tech, or, you know, there's agri-tech, agricultural technology. Uh, there's, sure, there's, like, stuff here and there, but, you know, also like probably very similar to Suriname, right? The scale is very different because the population is different. You know, it's much smaller, right? You know, if you have, you know, even if you like, they, we they, there's like a Yelp clone in, in Thailand, right? And, and even if you have 50% of the population using it, that's still not, not a, that big a number, right? Like, I don't know. I don't remember the population in Thailand, but I do know that, you know, like that that app probably has like fifty percent, but fifty percent is still a pretty small number compared to like an app that's popular in the US. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So the scales I th- I are think, very different. I think in the US, China, for instance, as well, but I think our population is even much smaller than Thailand. So just imagine.
2: Yeah, so I, I quickly checked it out. The population of Thailand is about seventy million and we aren't even Near a million.
0: Well, like, yeah, yeah. Like there's a, a Yelp clone kind of called Wong Nai, which is, it means inner circle. But like, I think there, there's like 30 million users, right? Like 30 million users is, is decent. But you know, when, when you're talking about Facebook scale, Instagram scale, WhatsApp scale, we're, we're talking about, you know, hundred million users or billion users and yeah.
1: Okay. I do have a couple of quick fire questions before we head off to the more serious stuff. The first question I have to ask, what was your first personal email address?
0: First oh personal. Well, yeah, the first email address was the school email address. First personal one was I wanna say it's either a hotmail. It's like P Pong Pat at Hotmail. <laughs> first initial last name at Hotmail.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I started with Hotmail as well. Yeah. I mean, technically yeah. I had yeah. an AOL I and an,
0: IC, yeah, I had, technically I had an ICQ and an AOL email, but I never checked their email. I just used the AOL instant messenger, right? Like I used it for the chat and ICQ, I also used it for the chat. I didn't use their email in any way.
2: Yeah. So are you more like a Mac or Windows user?
0: It's funny. I've come full circle. In the beginning, I was a Windows user. And then, you know, during Apple's time and when I became, you know, fully became a designer as a Mac user. And I, up until recently, was a Mac user for a very long time. But now, if you think about other than a few desktop apps, most of your apps are in the browser, right? And, uh, you know, I had bought, I, I, I travel for work a lot, like as a, you know, traveling businessman, traveling salesman, and I had a MacBook Pro, like. 15 inch or something at some point i got like man i'm tired of lugging this thing around it's heavy so then i got a macbook air and that thing is lighter but it's so underpowered and then now covid's happened and i have this macbook air and it's like this huffing and puffing thing that like gets out of breath right like the the fan is always on blaring because it's too underpowered like to have zoom and and my work stuff on and and all these slack and all this stuff and, but I'm not moving anywhere, right? And I need a big monitor, so so I switched to to a desktop PC with like a 49 inch monitor, and I was like, with a Nvidia graphics card. And right now, the you know CPU is at five percent. You know, there's there's nothing going on. It's not even breaking a sweat.
1: <laughs> oh, you're so confronting me right now.
2: <laughs> I was about to call you out, uh, yeah,
1: yeah, you're really confronting because I'm on a MacBook Air now and for those who have been very sharp have seen that I switched around and I changed browsers in the, during the show because one of the browsers that I originally planned on using wasn't, just with the internet connection, it wasn't cutting it. The feed kept disappearing. So I completely understand. The CPU CD- but-
0: always like 100% right and the fan is like ridiculously high that problem is gone like with the the, I got the I I went overboard right I I, I also thought I was gonna start gaming but I really haven't at all but I bought like a you know one of those Nvidia 3090 whatever RTX thinking I was gonna game but I I don't
1: Uh, somebody did point out, did you say a 49-inch monitor?
0: Yeah, yeah. Like, I have a 49-inch curb monitor. So, it's it feels like three monitors. It's great. Yeah.
1: So, basically, that's also part of the extra light for the setup. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, the next question would be, what would you consider the first networking website?
0: A networking website. Like… Could you define networking? Yeah, yeah. So the the
1: first website that you could go on, get a membership and connect with others around the world.
0: There was High Five before Friendster. I don't think I joined High Five. I used Friendster. Friendster and then MySpace. A funny story is, yeah, I met a girl on Friendster. She was my girlfriend for a while. And then I met my wife on MySpace.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's pretty cool, actually.
0: (laughs) But they weren't dating sites, right? They were just... Networking and they're like friends. Yeah, the uh, yeah one of my old girlfriends. She was a friend of a friend, and that's how we met through Friendster. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's pretty cool. I think in High Five was pretty big in Suriname as well, and you had Hives, which was connected to the Netherlands. So it was either one of the to- those two, and I think Facebook really became popular in Suriname around late two thousands,
2: twenty twenty ten around twenty ten. I remember that. That's that's when I got into it as well. I liked, you know, like MySpace was getting, like, people were installing
0: crazy scripts that would just kill your browser, you know, like, there all these slideshows and, like, three MP3s playing and ten slideshows, and it was just, like, slowing down your computer. And then Facebook came, and it was, like, this clean you know, no nonsense, just the content. And then the feed was actually useful because you didn't have to go to everybody's page to see what they updated, right? Like if you had like 10 friends, like MySpace didn't have a notion of a feed, right? So you had to go to their page to see what happened, what they wrote.
2: Speaking of a clean space, uh, you just mentioned Facebook, what is your opinion on Facebook's latest UI and user experience, what they changed it to? Like
0: I don't have a problem with the clean cleanliness. i I think my my bigger problem is you have all these designers designing on really big monitors and everything is huge. I ra- I'd rather see more information. Like I'm more of an information dense guy. like I can tell when like maybe young young designers have a problem with this. like they'll design you know, sometimes it's like they, yeah, they design some stuff that's like ridiculous. either the, the, it can go two ways. Either like when they're designing on a mobile app where they don't test on their phone, they design on a big monitor and it looks okay. And then when they put it on the phone, it looks really small because they don't really test on the phone. So that's one problem. And then the other problem is, you know, they design something that, you know, on, a, on a, another monitor, is just the lower resolution monitor. It's just huge because it's designed on a very high res monitor. And I think part of the problem is like this, this, yeah the the design u x design like I see a lot less content like if I were to go to Facebook right now, you know maybe I will see see one post or one and a one a quarter versus like more. I'd rather have more information density yeah
1: that's a very very interesting point, and people have pointed out which is a reason why reddit works as well so well as well that it's kind of very basic, but it it gives the people what you need, and I think like for most of our like our weekly viewers, they are very familiar with with user interface and user experience. But but for a noob, for somebody who's who's brand new is listening or seeing this for the first time and is like, okay, but why is UI and UX? Why is it important? Could you give people like a, a, a short? Yeah, I would I wouldn't say UI and UX for dummies. But why is that so important for? for a, a website or an app when pe- when people start using it.
0: Yeah. Well, there's, I guess a good analogy is like when something is well-designed, you just enjoy using it more or it's easier to use, you know? I, and I'm not talking about engineering when if something doesn't work, like, hey, the video doesn't work, that's like a good engineering problem. But, you know, I'll, I'll contrast like, maybe like Google, Google Hangouts versus Zoom. I have actually like two cameras, that I switch between and with zoom to change count, cam- you know, for both of them, sometimes they always by default, pick the wrong one, but it takes like six clicks through Google to switch cameras. Whereas with zoom, it's already a, just a drop down from the camera, the, the, the video, like stop cam or show cam button. There's like a, by default, there's a dropdown and you just pick one and then that's it. So you drop down and you select it. So it's two clicks. Whereas with, hangouts it's like you have to go into the dot 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 go into the click settings pick video click the drop down select select the right one click okay click close i just named at least six clicks to get you know so that is a much you know full of friction and it's like the just changing that setting is so painful to me that it's like uh you know and maybe that's a conscious decision, maybe like their data says that hey, 99% of the people who use Hangouts only have one camera, so we're going to just bury this, right? Because 99% of the people won't have this problem, but for the people who have two cameras or more and, you know, and by default these apps pick the wrong camera then it's a real problem like today you know we had this problem with Streamyard where by default it picked the wrong mic and we were trying to figure out and it was like so painful to just pick the right mic you know it's, it's several clicks but yeah so something well designed people enjoy using more something or or use or use at all period or don't they you know something that is not well designed tends not to be used or tends to be uninstalled so, so that's kind of like maybe like the, the high level of why user experience is important.
1: It's interesting. It brings me back to the, the early ages of going live where all of a sudden Periscope and Meerkat came around like these new apps. Yeah, you can go on Periscope and Meerkat and you can go live. And YouTube was like, but wait a minute, you can go live on YouTube already for such a long time. But getting through that, you had to go to a Hangout and then you had to figure out how to configure it. And then, of course, Facebook came and blew them all away because there were much more users. And on Facebook, it was just two clicks and you were done. And it's it's, it's interesting from, from that perspective where we often think as innovation is like something creating something completely new Whereas sometimes it's just like you want something that's so simple to use that anybody can can use it. So, yeah, I think that makes a a lot of sense. And then to follow up the question, like do you you see certain websites or certain ideas that are actually really good ideas and then when it comes out, it actually doesn't work because the UX is so terrible that people are like, even if it's a great uh, solution to a problem, uh, this just doesn't work for me. Hmm.
0: I can't think of, let me think about that for that that problem, that, that example, but a different, I thought you were going to ask a different type of question. But so like one, one thing, thought that I had in mind was like, you, you know, you can, like if we're talking startups and products, you can build a whole business on, on a feature that another company already has that is like so darn buried, right? Like like, like you said here, that, that was a great example. Like Calendly, Google Calendar actually has that feature. It's called Events, and it's like a totally different tab. But Calendly is like, simplifies that to just a few clicks, right, and you just share your Calendly link and, and that's your schedule, you know, versus Google Calendar that, that one little feature is buried First of all, if you don't know it, you probably have to Google how to find that feature and how to turn that on and how to set those things, whereas like with Calendly, it's just a few clicks.
1: And and that's also better integratable into your website, for instance, Calendly. Yeah. Yeah. Not thing, because now that you mention it, you can actually... Yeah, it's really upsetting that Google always already had those features, but they buried, keep burying those features. And it's harder time.
0: to use, so people we we'll still, like, we still use Calendly even though that feature exists because it's easier for someone to grab my Calendly link than, you know, sharing that other link and stuff like that. Yeah.
2: Yeah. When, when you mentioned uh, Google events to me, I, I didn't even know of it. I looked it up. And I think they buried it even further now that you have to have the the Google business subscription before you can actually use it. So, Yeah. And like, okay, never mind. Sticking to Calendly, so I, I've I've experienced that firsthand after you told me the first time. But yeah, stick. But quickly sticking to the, the UI UX for a bit. I was watching a few you know YouTube videos uh, a while back, and this thought came that Western, like as you said, the, the more modern Western world is very minimal. The designers are blowing things up, making it like focus on one thing, not enough information. But if you look at the Eastern side, China, Japan. It's flooded with I. I can now read a bit of Chinese and Japanese, but it's flooded with characters. It's flooded with text. There's very little white space. So I'm not sure you, you work with the uh, Asian companies as well as as well as US. What's the difference there? Do you think in philosophy, but also in in experience in, in that UI UX that the, the Asian markets go more for like flooding with you a lot of text, and the Western is more white space.
0: Yeah, it's, a, it's very different design sensibilities. I, I, can't, I, I can't claim too much experience with Chinese and Japanese design. I, I would say I have a very cursory knowledge, but I do understand that they, they prefer less clicks and more information up front, and they prefer them have more information density, whereas Western mindset or sensibilities prefer, you know, cleaner, more white space, cleaner design, you know, kind of simpler workflows. And that's why also I would not to generalize, but, you know, kind of maybe like, like Eastern Asian culture, you prefer less clicks and they you want information all in one page that they can just see and scan. Whereas, you know, Western or US design sense, it's more, one, it's more visual, one, it's more space. And and two, kind of, They don't mind clicking more, right? Having more clicks to go through more pages just, but as long as it's clean and sort of a a narrow, narrow workflow. I think Thai is a little different because it's, it's somewhere in between like Thai, you know, speaking of having Thai customers and, the past we you know they do like clean design the Thai vocabulary and Thai words tend to do you know kind of like maybe certain languages like German like you know a simple word in English maybe translated to Thai it's like several words so the buttons are, are you know kind of like you have that problem where it's more verbose so you know you run into those problems where you know what what would take you know one or two words or would just blow up in in Thai but Generally speaking, they, they also prefer cleaner sensibilities. I think more though, Thai consumers are, are at least kind of in e-commerce. The difference is like they're very sales driven and promo driven. So they, you know, so you have these gaudy like on sale now, like all these in your face sales. So which, you know, for my Western sensibilities, like it's not very clean right cuz it's just like glaring and gaudy like sales buttons and and graphics yeah
2: there is a quick question here from anil on the ux and he asks how will ux change now that we have more conversational interactions with tech so like alexa um, like voice activated how does yeah how does ux uh, play a role in that in moving more
0: yeah ux has expanded right i think you know in even throughout my career, right in the beginning, UX was mostly thought about for web, web desktop. Now we think about UX a lot. Most of the UX we think about is still web desktop. Now plus mobile, or depending on which customer we're talking to, mobile might be more important. But sometimes there's also watch interfaces, and you know now now UX has expanded, right? It might be voice interface so ux designers now there's more gen specializations so there's more to learn there's more to specialize because the web desktop experience is different than the mobile experience it's different than the tablet experience it's different than the voice experience so so ux designers now also can or need to you know for for different companies have to work on building voice interfaces as well or like in-car interfaces even or like large screen display interfaces or TV interfaces. So like, for example, like now, you know, there's a lot of smart TVs. I, I think what's happened during COVID is my consumption of YouTube has changed. Now, now that I'm home, I spend a lot more time on TV. And like I, a lot, I would say a good chunk of my YouTube consumption is actually on TV now through a smart TV interface. So somebody had to design that and that's different than a click web interface. So it's just more, more things.
1: You touched on a, a very interesting part as well because we end up coming back to, well, uh, YouTube is not really Google, but it still is. And YouTube has this terrible interface for making the cover photo for the YouTube channel work on a, on a television. I was like, it didn't make any, the dimensions didn't make any sense. And But, but you, you touched upon something very interesting. And I, I want to follow up on that because I think 20 years ago, I had a discussion or yeah, 20 to 15 years ago, I had a discussion with my dad and we were discussing at the time, mobile phones were kind of still still new. And I was having a discussion like, at a certain point, the computer is going to do everything that the mobile phone does. And he was like, no, 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 it's going to be the other way around. The mobile phone is going to do whatever the computer does. And of course he was right. At the time I was still young, I was I just had the thought in my head. And and that's kind of the, the change where of course we still use the desktop and you just told us you went full circle and why. But all of a sudden you see that things that you would usually do on bigger devices are going on phones, which you're seeing with of course young children who like just take the tone the phone of their parents and they watch YouTube and they're used to like a screen that is way too small for me. Like I'm I'm not gonna watch on this screen when I have a big screen, for them it's like, yeah, but I'm used to it. They don't even click away the ads, you know? I'm like, yeah, the ad is disturbing me because they don't even click away the ads, they just watch through it. So then my question comes, and you're into that part as well, and the UX and, and UI as well. So I do wanna, where do you feel we're going towards? Are we definitely going towards more the voice, integrated systems are we going to more towards an internet of things that everything is connected in your living room what kind of what kind of changes do you really see like and see like okay in in five years time people don't think about it yet but this is going to be a a pretty normal thing which now is kind of a techie or a geeky thing yeah well i
0: you know being a techie and geeking out over stuff you know we i'm an enabler and of of Connecting, you know, my company is an enabler of connecting things to the internet. And we worked on IoT related projects. And, and I also geek out on stuff. So I, I think we're just going to see more and more connected devices. One, because we're tethered to our mobile phones for better or for worse. In fact, funny story uh, today, I, we actually, I actually just installed some water sensors. So these are their sensors to detect water leaks you know and and of course I bought smart ones they have like dumb ones that are just if they sense it they just blare alarm you know from their stuff but this one does that and it's also IoT so you did install the app and you connect the bluetooth but the idea is you know if something like hey a washer dryer leaks or you know pipe leaks and the floor gets wet I'll get an alert from my phone even if I'm not home so that's the I think people want that because of the convenience, right? You're not always gonna be home and you want to be alerted. You want to be, you know, I think somebody had a, there was like a really funny video where, I recall this was like maybe a couple of years ago where, you know, people, somebody had a a ring doorbell, right? And then there was a delivery package. If they weren't home, what they did was there was a Tesla parked in the right driveway. What they did was they opened the Tesla for the delivery person to put the package in the car so they remotely open the door, unlock the Tesla so that the delivery person can put put the package in the Tesla and then they could lock it. So they, they turned the Tesla in a, into a smart locker using, you know, like the combination of ring to let the person know who it was. And then Tesla to, as a storage was very interesting and fascinating. But something like that wasn't possible many years before, right? Like the person could just they ring the doorbell a couple of times, nobody's home, so I'm just going to leave the package here and and risk the possibility of getting it stolen. I think people are willing to... There's it's not much of a trade, like, you know, yeah, of course, there's some, some privacy issues and, and stuff, but connecting things to the internet makes it more convenient. So I think people, more and more people want to do it. You know, even the lights in the back, I actually connect them to, like... So like kind of smart smart uh, switches. So so I'm just turning them on and off from my phone now.
1: So now we do have to ask the question, where do you stand on, on, on the privacy? Like we've, we've seen, like, for instance, I, I still mock my friends because the beginning of the year when WhatsApp kind of announced that they were changing the, the, the privacy settings, like everybody jumped onto other messaging platforms. And now, and I was, of course, like, yeah, that's fine. But like, we have on a on a, we have a 0.6 population million population in Suriname, and we have over one million active mobile phones. So we have 1.5 active mobile phones per per inhabitant. And considering we still have youngsters as well, so basically two or more phones per person. And everybody uses WhatsApp. So WhatsApp is kind of the main 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 app that's being used here. And people were like, yeah, we're switching over. We're now going to use Signal. And then, of course, I'm kidding around six months later and saying like, so how is it going on Signal? Are you still using Signal? And it was, of course, for convenience sake. But there is, of course, the issue with with data and how much data is being given. Now, from a marketing perspective, I, of course, love the data, the user data, because I can target better. But from a more community, social perspective, it is kind of discomforting how much information you're giving away. So, where do you do you see there is a boundary between what kind of information people are allowed to know from you and what they aren't allowed for to know from from you?
0: Yeah, I I guess my stance on that is a very pragmatic, you know, stance of of a business owner or you know an, an entrepreneur. And there's a there's a saying, right? I don't know if you've heard of it. It's like if you aren't paying for the product, you are the product. Like, how do you expect Facebook to host all the photos you've ever uploaded or all the videos that you ever uploaded, you know, that you take, you know, everybody and all the private messages between all you and all your friends, like they have to operate a business. They are, they're operating, there's real tangible costs of data centers and engineers and, you know, designers, like their whole, I can tell you like, like they're just maybe their iOS mobile design team is probably bigger than my whole company right like so that there's a real hard cost that they have to bear so like how do they do that for free they can't they can't do this for free it costs money so they have to pay for if you are not paying a member you know like hey if you're paying for proton email or you know you know salesforce crm and stuff you you're paying for that right so there's there's a an exchange in value somehow Right, where you're giving money, so there's an expectation of privacy. Where here, I've no, I use this product absolutely for free. So, you know, I, I look at it as well, they have to make money somehow.
1: Yeah, no, I do use ProtonMill, but yeah. I've, I've heard of it, I've seen it
2: around, uh, but I haven't really delved into it. But yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much the same as it. It's, it's got to be practical, and it's, there's a trade off always, and you got to decide for yourself which trade-off you want, and then you go go down that path. So I want to tie this up uh, real quick full circle with uh, basically a final question, a final big question. And this is more directed or enabled by you, Shanluk, as your company culture is this way. But as COVID has, you know, uh, forced a lot of people to work remotely and working from a distance, deciding your own times to deliver. I've I've noticed uh, from your website and the the background you've done, you guys serve clients internationally. You guys are kind of like a a global team or a a spread out team, remote first. Your team is like, correct me if I'm wrong, like mostly remote working. So did you start from the start since 20, 2012, 2011, when you started what was that the philosophy to start remote first before the all this COVID that shifted all the companies to think that way?
0: Yeah, we were always, well, we started out as hybrid where we, so I, I get a lot of my influence from a company called, a Chicago startup called uh, 37 Signals. If you're in the startup space uh, you know you might know a project management tool called basecamp so anyways they're one of the you know they're they have an office in in chicago but they are also a very remote culture and they've always kind of talked and uh, been very vocal about hiring remote when i started impeccable in the bay area we we always hired some people remote and then there was also some people in the bay area and for the people in the bay area we had an office that we we went to why we hire remote Well, one Financially, it just was more feasible because in the Bay Area, I'm competing with like Google and Facebook and stuff. I can't compete on salary like, like that. It's just not realistic. So we, we were forced to hire remote just to be able to get the talent from anywhere. So we, we were remote first from from the very beginning. Some people were local, but I would say at any point in time, 75 or 80% of our team was always remote. So yeah. So it's always been remote. So we we've when COVID happened, you know the, the the thing that did change was mostly for me is we we shut down our office and I I stopped going for, to an office. So we we were we went from eighty percent remote to now a hundred percent remote.
1: How difficult was that? How difficult was it to shut down the office?
0: Well, you you know when COVID happened, you couldn't go right. Everything was locked down and you couldn't go to the office. So we were spending money for an office we weren't using anyways for like three months. And then I decided, okay, this is just wasting money. So we we got, were able to get out of it. But I think psychologically or emotionally, I was probably, I was one of the people who probably had the most difficult time shifting a little bit because I always had an office. You know, I went to an office, I got up in the morning, got dressed for work, drove, drove to work, had a Parking lot and then walk from the parking lot to an office. Whereas 80% of my team, they just got up and worked at their computer. So for me, it was the biggest adjustment of like work I I guess maybe like work-life boundary because I didn't have I had a very clear delineation right I I went to an office and then I also like I was also like the traveling work the nature of work for me changed because as the CEO slash salesperson of the company so like for the local Bay Area San Francisco clients I would it was not unusual for me to drive and go see them. For other clients, obviously, I didn't, you know, that weren't in the Bay Area, obviously, I didn't go see them. But I was used to also commuting, you know, going see clients. So that completely changed. And we had to change how we, you know, attracted new clients or new business. And, like, I think the companies that had an advantage, just like the companies that did remote before COVID got, you know, were were already used to it. The companies that were already great at online marketing, digital marketing, I think did really well in COVID because it's, they were already doing it. For me, I was relying a lot on personal relationships, you know, like, like to me, like if people, you know, Diego, Diego, you, you were like impressed by the logos. My, my, I guess my superpower is I'm great at developing relationships and having face-to-face relationships. You know, I would drive and see people. I'm good at that and, and thinking of them and and having coffee th- with them so like all that was just blown away you know and i had to rethink on how i create new business you know i feel like you know in some ways my 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 legs were cut off you know like at the knees so like i was i was handicapped because you know how i was i was overly relying on on offline channels and face to face contact and personal relationships whereas companies that were digital native and digital online marketing you know, now now they had the advantage and then, you know, I, I had wished that, man, I wish I'd started learning these skills and doing these things sooner because now the world's kind of changed.
2: So a uh, quick follow up on it. So from a UX perspective, your team was basically already on board on that. So in the early days, how did you kind of, from a U- employee user experience side, How how did they, well, what's the feedback you got from them? And was that kind of, you know, you, you drew inspiration from others, but finding these people or were they already, you know, thinking in that same direction on remote first and how did you even find these remote employees? What what, was the feedback you got? Well,
0: I I think as we were able to attract great customers, I think it was, it wasn't um, hard for us to attract talent I think people really enjoy you know we attracted the people who really enjoyed you know a, a sense of work-life balance that enabled them to work remotely or they wanted to work remotely so we, we had we've always attracted kind of the remote first work remote first workers what I think what's changed now is that everybody every company is, is remote work remote first not by choice how the the user experience for us, we we always had to we had to be remote from the very beginning remote friendly from the very beginning so the user experience has always been video so like even when we had a meeting in the office you know we we would want to join even if everybody was here we we always create a zoom meeting we always create a google hangout meeting so people could join you know we we use the google tools judic- you know very um Diligently, so that people could feel people who were remote could feel inclusive. Stand ups, you know, we, we record them. So, if you're in another time zone, you could watch my, our all hands to stand up later. So, we, we designed a culture of remote first. We do a lot of documentation. You know, we write things down a lot. We use Confluence as our wiki, Google Docs, Google Slides to present, and those are always made available to the team. So, you know, even if so, yeah, we we made it so that in as much as possible, people felt, you know, included if you're a remote worker. And then pre-COVID, we, what we did was twice a year, we would have a get together. So we we do value face-to-face relationships, especially, you know, being who I am, I, that's what I value. So we, at some point we started a tradition of like, you know, in the summer we kind of take sort of a break for the week and we fly everybody in for the week and we hang out. We We do a lot of team building, we do a lot of Eating together, having lots of meals together and fun activities. So we try to do that. We try to do that pre-pandemic twice twice a year, you know, summer and winter.
2: That's that's really cool. Is there anyone on your team that you haven't met personally face to face yet?
0: Oh, now there's a lot because we've also grown so we've since hired many people since the pandemic. So I I haven't met many many of those people. Pre-pandemic, if we hired someone new one of the things I did was they would spend a week at the Bay area headquarters. Now, now we have no headquarters, so I don't know what what we do now post pandemic, but you know, that, that was one thing that, you know, they, they got to spend time at the, the office and, you know, we, we put them in a one week Airbnb and typically we like, you know, the people in the office, we take turns, taking them out to lunch, you know, I sometimes take them out to dinner, yeah, spend as much time with them as possible. And to develop those those face to face, you know, real life relationships and build those bonds. I don't have a good answer on how to replicate that. um, During a pandemic, of course, everybody has to be locked down. But I think now that things are opening up, and people are starting to get vaccinated in US, we can kind of get back to a little bit of that where, hey, you know, we can maybe spend some money to fly people in. But I'm not you know, with everybody being remote, there's no central place to fly now. You know that's yeah, maybe that's even better because then we can
1: hey let's go there because everybody wants to go. But but yeah, so the the question is then, how do you find these people? Like how how does the selection process to work at an, an impeccable look like?
0: Yeah, we, well, we we lean we we have a recruiter. We we put out job postings. That's like one of the first thing is the the hiring manager writes a job description of the the role that they need, and then our recruiter will put it out there in various job boards, and and they'll kind of be the first gate, if you will, to filter out. And it's actually she deals with a lot. She'll get like she'll. You know, there might like by the time that people start interviewing. So, I remember one stat where we, our team interviewed like six people. Well, she had to get, she narrowed it down from 60. She had like 60 good candidates that, you know, and the funnel, the top of funnel is even bigger, but then she narrowed it down to six from the 60. To, from that, you know, maybe 60 was. Okay. And then from there, she, she whittled it down to six so that we don't have to deal with the six. And then we, we have a process, an interview process, like at least three gates of interviews where, you know, the, the who, whoever's hiring will interview. And then finally, at some point, I may get to talk to them, but companies, you know, at the size where I don't really even, by, by the time it gets to me, most people, they just want me, my, my approval. But, we we also reach out to our network. We're encouraged to, you know, if you, obviously, you know, if you know someone good from our team, you know, we, this is an opportunity to, to work at Impeccable. Yeah. One, one great thing that we've, we've adopted from, from other hiring practices is screening for culture and, and our, our culture values. So that's not something that we, we did before in the early days. You know, I, I was never, nobody ever taught me how to hire, but, you know, ha- having, brought on people from, from more, more, who have more experience hiring, we've adopted some really good hiring practices. So, so that's something that we, we do now is we, we, we have questionnaires that, that also screen for, for cultures, culture fit and stuff like that.
2: That's really, really uh, elaborate, I'd say, and th- the rate that you've grown as well, even during COVID. But yeah, th- there's actually so much more I-, I want to follow up on, but we- we've hit the hour mark and I-, I think it's time we 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 wind it down. So to close it off, I- I'm going to leave it at that. look, did you have anything else burning that you wanted to ask?
1: I, I mean, I'm going to leave Gregory off with a- another rough question, if I might say so. As tech has become more integrated and powerful, is there a place for government regulation to get involved, or will it ruin the purity of the art?
0: Well, I mean, tech is a tool. It's not an art, right? I I think art, when I think when people, you know, this is the same analogy, like what design, in my sense, solves a problem. UX design is not art. Art is, you know, you you know, if a designer, if a UX designer has too big an ego and it's uh, it's about their design and their work, they, they don't have a place at Impeccable. Design has to solve a problem for the users, has to solve a problem for the stakeholders, the business that's hiring us. And it's not really about the the design c- as created by the designer. You know, there's no place for design like the ego of the designer. In in that sense, you know, tech is similar where tech needs to solve a problem. And if tech is being a tool that's taking advantage of people in a gray way that, like here's, uh, I just read something interesting now that's uh, a headline that caught my attention. I think a firm bought like an old power plant in New York, upstate New York and this was in recent news, and they're using that power plant to just mine Bitcoin. And that is creating so much heat that it's, it's heating up the, one of the lakes, right? That's, that's actually, that, that has a negative impact on the environment. You know, it's, to me, it's sort of like the equivalent of, you know, dumping waste into to a lake, right? You're, you're destroying the ecosystem of the lake by, by doing that, so I think there should be some regulatory thing, you know, or, or like, you know, you, maybe you tax that, right? Like there's like a carbon tax because there's carbon emissions, you know, you're, you, you have to tax that. So I think there's, you know, and just like uh, monopolies, right? Like I think now there are monopolies, but it's not clear to the government that they are monopolies. Like before, like those telcos in the US that were broken up, like Baby Bell telcos, because it was obvious that was in a mon- monopoly now. Not like Google is so big that it's essentially a monopoly, right? Facebook is a monopoly, you know, because they control what's WhatsApp, Instagram, Facebook, like all the major social networks, right? Like it's still all Facebook. Like Google tracks you even if you have an iPhone because you have some Google app, right? If, if you don't have Google Maps, you you have Gmail. If you have Gmail, they're tracking your location, whether you like it or not, right? So if you want, you don't want Google to track you, don't have any Google apps, on it, and even then, if you you don't have any Google apps, like maybe you have a consumer app that uses Google Ads as their admi- advertisement fa- platform, so they'll track you anyways. So you know, so they, they essentially have a monopoly on tracking you.
2: Yeah, I think. Uh, yeah, can't escape Big Brother. <laughs> can't
0: can't can't escape you know big 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 co.
1: And and we're thankful for them because. When you drive somewhere and you want to check the traffic, then they also use that.
0: Well, you trade that, right? You trade that convenience. Yeah, right. You trade that because you're not paying for anything, right? So most people are not paying for, like, I, I, I there's no way for me to pay for Google Maps. It's like, I'd you know, some people would like, hey, don't track me. I'll pay for it. You can't, right? They want to track you they, and they'll monetize in other ways.
2: Yeah, there's um, no opt out or opt. There's not no
0: opt out, right? There's no like option to like, hey, let me pay you and don't track me. So, so those companies, th- that is their business, is is the dealing of data. So it's yeah. At some point, it's when it becomes too invasive. I, I think yeah, that I guess it government should do something about it when it's it's too. Yeah, that's that's beyond the point. of This could go on and forever. This more people involved to talk to, to talk. Uh, but this is a really good convi- that was a really good co- question.
2: There, there's so much actually it opened more floodgates but we'll probably have to do a follow-up somewhere in the future i'm not sure but hope you're uh, satisfied with that answer greg then i guess time to close off could you quickly tell us about the two podcasts you have where people can find them and learn more about that and then
0: one, one podcast is a design, a UX design podcast called what is UX and you can go to whatisUX.co and I, I interview designers, example, like it's designers from Netflix, YouTube, Yelp. So those are great, great conversations to learn more about UX design. And the other one is a founders podcast where I interview startup founders and that is, yeah, it's called founders with Peck. You can find it on YouTube is the primary format, but you can also find it on popular podcasts for the audio version on on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and that stuff. The UX podcast is mostly an audio podcast. There's no YouTube version of that.
2: Awesome. We'll link those in the description as well once we release this episode. Guys, check out Impeccable as well. They do amazing work. And Beck, appreciate it coming on here with us and just sharing your perspective. I I think we've definitely learned some actually a lot from the different uh, from coming from Thailand and the different Asian perspective, but also the, the work culture that you've cultivated over the years. So appreciate that you sharing that with us. With that being said, guys in the comments, thanks for showing up. Thanks for the questions, especially Greg and yeah, look out for next week and the release of the audio version on the website and all podcasting platforms. Sean Luke, I guess you have a final word and then you can roll us out.
1: As always, get back to us next Tuesday at 9 o'clock Surinamese time, 8 8 p.m. Eastern time. This was Social Confos. See you back next week. Bye-bye.